Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 59 of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. The podcast in which we are on a journey to true Cage Nirvana, the highest form of being, to get to know a little better the man they call Nicholas Cage, the golden hog of Hollywood, by watching all of his films. Each week I'm joined by a guest that helps me deep dive into the repertoire of the most wonderful filmography known to man. Um, a filmography with no bad films whatsoever. Uh, don't at me, you will be blocked and reported. Um, so how are you this week? Good to see you. I have come out of the end of a three-week consistent stretch on late at the day job. Um, so I am emotionally and mentally wrecked. Obviously today recording this on the uh, the morning of the Euro final, the Euro 2020 final between England and Italy. Again, contractually obliged to say it's coming home. Uh, obviously don't know the score at this point, by this point when the episode comes out, or um, next week at least when we do the next intro, next episode, we'll know what happens. Are we in history or are we covered in absolute dolmio from head to toe, dolmioed by the Italian force? Um, we will find out in due course. But um, that aside, this week we are looking at Trespass from 2011. Um, I'm joined by Josh Bell this week to break this one down. This was a really fun conversation. We get into all sorts on this one. We talk about Cage's TIFF interview to promote this film. Um, the very clumsy and weird interview he gave to promote this film. Um all of the twists and the turns and the twists and turns and twists and turns and twists and turns this film presents and how they almost kind of sort of weirdly relate to Saw and ultimately how this film is completely beneath everyone that is in it. It's an interesting film. I Ultimately a very forgettable film, but we'll get all into that in the episode. And just before we dive in, of course, as ever... You can follow the podcast on all the various social medias. You can find me on Twitter. I am at cage underscore podcast. You can find me on Instagram. That is at cage rage pod. And you can listen on all the usual streaming services that are provided. That is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, Stitcher, Deezer, TuneIn, iHeartRadio and Acast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser and you're enjoying the podcast, uh, please do consider giving it a rating. It really helps the podcast and follow it as well on your streaming platform of choice. Also, 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 if you go to the link tree available on the Twitter page, uh, the very top link you'll see there's an affiliate link for Pop in a Box UK. So if you're a UK resident and you've been eyeing up some Funko Pops, you know me, you know your boy, you know I love a good Funko Pop. Um, head on over there through the link. 
Uh, it helps out the podcast. Your boy gets a little bit of a kickback as well, which is always wonderful. And of course, we bide our time until those Mandy Funko Pops become available in the UK. But go stock up, build up that collection, grab yourself a Bob Ross or two and help out your boy in the process. We really appreciate it. But with that all said and out of the way, let's get into the episode this week. It's episode 59, Trespass, Daryl Edge, Josh Bell. Enjoy. Duh. So 2011 continues as we leave Drive Angry in the rearview mirror and move on to the crime thriller Trespass. This week, Cage stars as Kyle Miller, a silver-tongued diamond dealer whose family falls victim to a home invasion by vicious crooks who want the wealth hidden in Kyle's safe. Now, joining me on the journey to True Cage Nirvana this week to see if Trespass can negotiate itself as a good movie, or if some deals are just destined to fall through, is writer, film and TV critic, and podcast host of Awesome Movie Year, it's Josh Bell. Josh, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm great, and thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here with you and the very scary-looking Nicolas Cage (laughs) that is behind you. Looking forward to talking to both of you. (laughs) <laughs> well fortunately he's he's more of a he, he's the looker of the operation he's just a brawn he just keeps a watchful eye over things just to make sure things don't go too too off track here uh so don't worry about him don't worry about him um but with the the presence the um <laughs> unintentionally ominous ominous presence of cage with us i always like to ask guests when we kick off these podcast episodes that uh you know what are your uh, thoughts, feelings on the man, the myth, the legend, Nicholas Cage. Rate him, hate him, tolerate him. Uh, where do you stand on uh, Mr. Cage? Uh, I enjoy Nicholas Cage mostly. Um, I think, and I've heard you say, uh, I think there's a lot of people who enjoy Nicholas Cage ironically. And mm-hmm. I think here the idea is that you you don't enjoy Nicholas Cage ironically. That, that Nicholas Cage. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not, I think that's great. I, I think there, I, I, my feeling on Nicolas Cage is that there are times when I think he is truly great. And there are times when I think he is great for what he's stuck in. Um, and certainly, especially <laughs> as we get to, I'm sure as you're, as you're, you're moving forward in time with this podcast and we're here in 2011. And as you get further and further ahead, you're going to get a lot of these movies that, are no good for any reason other than Nicolas Cage being in them. <laughs> and and I, I think that's that can be fun. You know, uh, I end up seeing a lot of these straight to VOD type movies for various uh, reviews and things that I write. And if you want to compare Nicolas Cage, say, to Bruce Willis or John Travolta, who show up in tons and tons of these movies, Robert De Niro even, you know if you get one of those, they're barely showing up. And Nicolas Cage, whatever terrible crap he's in, he shows up with a vengeance. And so I appreciate that about him, that there'll always be at least one moment, you know, in this movie, too, where he does some Nicolas Cage thing and you're like, yes, I'm into it. <laughs> and that's definitely what I'm here for. Um, and I think it's I think definitely with Bruce Willis as well. That's often one of the. Uh, comparisons that comes up i think there was a tweet not too long ago that was like who has had the worst career but and i think it exactly as you pointed out uh, a bruce willis a john travolta these straight to video films they're here for a paycheck but nicholas cage at the very least and 
yes, this is part of the cage defender in me. I think even in some of the absolute tripe that you get, especially in the 2010s, which is, I think it's fair to call it his video on demand era. This was a more um, miss than hit in this decade. And I think certainly Trespass was probably the the, the one that really kicked it, <laughs> that really kicked it <laughs> off in the What a great distinction for that film to have, really. <laughs> well, there was, um, it was something I was going to bring up. I did see a fact about this film saying it was one of the, the, the quickest ever films to go from a theatrical release to DVD. It took like two weeks or something, 18 days, very quick. So we're making history, not yeah. exactly for the, for the right reasons. Um, and I tried to see the film that was it was previously held by 2003's from Justin to Kelly. Um, oh, yeah. I think not one that I'd actually heard of prior to recording today, but said that oh, that's a, that's a very American film, I think, from Justin to Kelly, because that's the winners of the original American Idol that was a quickie oh, right. uh, cash-in <laughs> thing. So something that, you know, uh, probably didn't make it uh, across the pond there, and thankfully so. <laughs> Well, small mercies, I suppose. So I'll um, unfortunately let America take the brunt on that <laughs> one. <laughs> uh, that, that's for the next podcast, the quick theatre to DVD releases. Um, but, but like I say, it, it's definitely one that sort of kicked off an unfortunate trend. Um, and it was, it was around this time for me in 2011 when I went to um, university or uh, college, I think it's the translation in America, Look at me trying to appeal to everyone with my language. I, I know um, what university is. I can, <laughs> I can roll with that. Yeah. Um, this was this was about the time when a lot of like high street retailers who were selling mostly DVDs and stuff. It felt like every other week that I went in, there was a new Cage film that was on the shelf, and I was like, "Well, I'm, I'm not com- completely out of the loop with cinema, but I've never heard of this film." And then. A lot of film posters were just him running away from an explosion, which I think seemed to be the theme at the time, maybe in like a post uh, sort of taken world. It seemed like, I think with the actors we were bringing up as well, the Willis's, the Travolta's, like a lot of actors were thinking, you know, maybe is this the big comeback film? Because I don't think anyone thought Taken was going to be the success it was when it came out. So I think we had a lot of imitators around the same time and following this, but... um Trespass, although not necessarily an action film, definitely one that slipped under my radar, not one that I'd heard of. It seemed to be Season of the Witch, then Drive Angry, and then a lot of things kind of dropped off, for me at least. Uh, Was Trespass one that you'd heard of when it came out? I think so. Um, I mean, I would have been working as a film critic in 2011. I didn't see it then, but I may have been aware of of its existence, and especially that weird record that you're talking about where it immediately left theaters uh whoever the the distributor was just lost all nerve and decided to bury it as quickly as possible so um yeah and i think as opposed to a lot of the later straight to vod movies that nicholas cage did this had a slightly higher pedigree given that nicole kidman is in it and that it was directed by joel schumacher who it certainly had fallen off a lot by this point, but was still a fairly notable name. So I think as opposed to a lot of those later ones where the budget is so low that you realize they spent a lot of it just on getting Nicolas Cage and they can't really <laughs> afford to get anyone else of note. Um, and this movie had some level of 
seeming respectability that of course it doesn't live up to but i i think i had heard of it certainly when you had put out a list of potential films to cover um that was one that stood out because i had this vague memory of well isn't there something about that that's maybe of some note and of course it also ended up being joel schumacher's final film uh which of course was not known at the time and uh i mean he died i think about nine nine years later maybe but never got to make another film so that's a, a sad footnote on this one. Yeah, a sad footnote. But hey, if your last film was with Nicolas Cage, then swings and roundabouts, buddy. Am I right? Ah, um, he probably <laughs> had a good time. Although, I don't know. It sounds like maybe he didn't have a good time. There was some uh, conflict there between him and Cage, maybe, based on what I read on Wikipedia, which is always reliable. <laughs> well, it did me well in my studies. Let's put it that way. Um, I mean, from what, you, from what you brought up there, it was something I read as well. There seemed to be about... 24 hours of disruption to the film. Um, so as I touched in the intro, uh, Cage plays uh, the husband in a family that's sort of taken hostage by burglars. Um, it, I think it's about August 3rd, 2010. It was um, reported that he'd abandoned the project because he allegedly insisted on switching roles um, from husband to one of the kidnappers. Um, I did read that role was then offered to uh, leave Schreiber, but then the following day, Cage resumed his role, and they just had to put that behind them. Um, so that's uh, weird disruption, but what a quick turnaround. What a, what a tumultuous 24 hours that must have been. Yeah, and it is strange because you'd think, again, the thing is about these movies is that Cage is just showing up to do whatever they eat want him to do you know he's he's getting a paycheck maybe he's gonna do his best and and throw himself into the role but it is still just a paycheck thing for so for him to argue with some sort of artistic integrity i guess that he, he's <laughs> better suited to a different role i assume would have been the reason like i it just seems a little out of place and obviously they all worked it out somehow <laughs> for better or worse given the film that i've uh, watched yeah. and has informed my day um, as you, as you said, they're returning to work with Joel Schumacher after they previously worked together on, um, 8mm. Um, 8mm is another one of their films that's, um, I enjoyed. It's one of those, like, I can, I can get why it probably didn't get the reception they were hoping for at the time, but I think it's fine to be like a, a kind of cult film, really, in today's day and age. Trespass, I don't think, is ever going to receive the same accreditation um 10 years from now but markedly different films as well in uh in in a lot of aspects um was eight millimeter one that you were familiar with as well josh yeah i mean i saw eight millimeter in the theater and so i haven't seen it since then and i don't remember all the particulars of it but i don't think i liked it at the time but i think you're right in that it is much more distinctive it's a movie that you can see how it would have kind of a cult following or people would remember it um, with the whole snuff film aspect. It was very kind of sleazy, I think would be the right mm. word maybe for that film. Sure. Um, so, but I had not revisited that one. So um, <laughs> my, 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 whatever year it came out in is, you know, 15 plus years ago or whatever, that was the last time I saw it. So it's uh, been a, quite a while. Yeah, definitely, definitely been a while. I think that was uh, 99. I thought it was 98. It was 99. Oh, man. Yeah. So, wow, quite like 20 odd years or so. Yeah. Um, 
So my my recollection from that long ago is fuzzy, but it is. I remember that I saw it, so that is something that <laughs> stuck with me. And there was a snuff film involved. That's a, really the extent of what I remember. That's like about eighty percent of the film. So you're pretty <laughs> pretty accurate. I think that's the thing, though, with a lot of films. Obviously, there's the passing of time, but sometimes you see films and you just kind of forget that you've seen them. I think even this one, like after I'd finished it and made my notes, I was like, I feel a little foggy on a lot of the details of the films, but that might just be a me thing. Um, Me and my partner went to see uh, Spiral, the new Saw film, just the other day. Cinemas are slowly reopening here. Um, And I quickly... Wikipedia, it's Wikipedia again. Um, just the Saw film, which I thought, oh, you never know what details you might need to know because the Saw franchise is so complex, um, so, shall we say. Unfortunately, Spiral is pretty self-contained, but um, my partner was saying, like, you do realise like we've seen a bunch of Saw films? And I was like, have we? She's like, yeah, we saw Saw 5, and then we saw uh, um, Saw 3D in the cinemas, um, which, if you're listening and you're, you're a a spectacle wearer such as myself and such as Josh when you have to wear 3D glasses over your normal glasses. Uh, that's always a marvellous time. Um, so apparently I completely forgot that machines were coming out at me and I was just trying to dodge them, making my own fun at that film. Um, but I think just goes show some films you just completely forget about them. And then this one I think is... There were some cage moments in there, like you said, which we'll definitely get into. But I think as an overview of the film before we get into it, it's... I think one of the best parts about this film is that it's 90 minutes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The best part is that it ends. (laughs) With the greatest of respect to Nicolas Cage, obviously the greatest actor of our generation. Um, I don't know if if that's just how my sort of tastes in films have changed over the years. That used to be before, like, I didn't really mind how long a film was, but now just seeing that a film's 90 minutes, I'm like, oh, God bless you. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful number. Just seeing that 90 on a film... Um, so it went quick enough, I guess. Um, yeah, it's, it's very repetitive. It's very repetitive. I mean, it's 90 minutes, but it's kind of the same 15 minutes over and over again. It feels like a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was kind of like, um, the, the, the script was trying to balance who I was supposed to be more invested in. Was it the Miller family or was it? the burglar four um as i'm now just going to call them and it seemed to flip flop it was almost like a scale of balancing who should care about more in that 15 minutes like you said it was a very repetitive 15 minutes because i was i was as the film was sort of ticking on i was kind of thinking like right well how many times can the burglars just implode on each other how many times is everyone just going to start shouting and I think if you're going to try and spice this game up, like if you're a drink and you wanted to make a drinking game, anytime someone shouts, you can have a wonderful time with this film. It's very loud. Um, one of the few compliments I think I can throw to it at this early stage. I don't know about you. I don't know if that's a compliment that the characters are yelling the whole time. It's like, well, I mean, I think that's the problem is that there's no escalation. It starts with everyone yelling and then they just sustain the yelling for the next 90 minutes or so. And I don't think that's really proper pacing. Um, yeah, I uh, I don't know that that was a good thing necessarily. I mean, with Cage, of course, you kind of want him to yell because if he, if he gets that that he he gets agitated, you know, you're going to get maybe kind of a fun cage moment. Um, And he plays this character who is 
in a way sort of nebishy, I guess, you know, they, they give him, they're, they're clear to give him glasses, which as you and I both know are indicators of, uh, you know, lack of masculinity, right? I feel like that's... <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what this movie is trying to convey, that that he's uh, um, he's meek, and that's because we gave him glasses. Um, but he's the character least likely to yell in some parts of this movie because he's sort of ashamed of himself, I guess. Um, but you do get that great moment where he yells about being a cuckold, and uh, <laughs> that's one of those ones that you wonder, was that in the script or does Nic- did Nicolas Cage decide he had to say that? It's always a great game trying to wonder um, and figure out which lines that Cage added. Uh, <laughs> because he, um, I think it's evident at this point, certainly this stage of the podcast, that um, he likes control where he can get it, not necessarily in a, I mean, in a bad way, like he's trying to overthrow directors and writers or anything, but... He he sees the character and he has an instinctive, I think I can only describe it as a Cajun way of um, seeing what I can add to a character. Um, and it was it's interesting you sort of bring up this, this these characteristics because you don't you don't know if he's meant to be capable of defending himself or if this is an intentional choice thing. Because um, prior to recording, I found an interview at the. Um, at the TIFF Toronto International Film Festival where they were promoting the film. And there were some interesting tidbits there, especially from Cage, actually touching upon what you you said there. Um, and I will say before I get into this, I think Cage's explanation of this is a little, how shall I put it, confused in one of the ways that I think, um, I think he knows what he means, but he hasn't exactly articulated it. In the best way, and I'll I'll try and <laughs> I guess kind of explain it. He says with a shrug. Um, so first of all, he said that um, he originally wanted to play Kyle Miller with a stutter, um, and in his eyes, this would have been a way of showing the audience that Kyle Miller was the last type of person you would expect to defend his family. And he kind of described this, his justification for this was, um, in his eyes, he saw Kyle as, and I quote, sexually confused, um, which, as, uh, as Josh's face for the listener is like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll tr- I will try to expand on what Cage said here. So he, and, and again, he, so he said, his point was that he has friends who are um, in heterosexual relationships, but his um, his direct word was, they are obviously heterosexual. And he said, and again, and I quote, uh, sometimes you look at them and go, are you or are you not? Um, because he wanted to um, break down stereotypes and archetypes, and um, he wanted to seem misjudged by... Uh, ben Mendelssohn's character and the burglars. So this was kind of a roundabout way of, of kind of his point of backing up what you said of what character he's supposed to be. And with the stutter as well, he did add that uh, Joel Schumacher did talk him out of doing that. But um, he jokes that they would have been wearing tuxedos later in the year had he been allowed to keep the stutter in. Um, so would a stutter have aided the character for you? No, I mean, I think these are like... <laughs> You're right that Nicolas Cage 
often does that in the in these especially in these sort of throwaway roles where he comes up with some strange justification in his mind for doing weird stuff and it's enjoyable but those all seem incredibly misguided and i think in a weird way it goes with my joke about the stereotype of being a glasses wearer that they're just piling on these really semi-offensive stereotypes about what constitutes some sort of weak person uh or weak man and to say oh someone who someone who stutters is weak someone who's sexually confused or uh, has an ambivalent sex ambiguous sexuality is is weaker uh, or is someone that we assume wouldn't be able to defend themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. that's definitely not uh, an angle you want to take. And definitely not an angle you want to take in a movie directed by a gay man. I would think that that's not something that you want to go to that <laughs> director with. Who knows how Joel Schumacher direct- or reacted to that part. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and I guess maybe he's thinking that there should be some sort of sexual tension there between him and Ben Mendelsohn. I don't know. I didn't. Luckily, none of that was in the movie. The only thing I could think of in that actually made it into the movie is, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who would ever see this movie for some reason. But um, <laughs> when we learn that he knew of course this is like a twist on a twist because at first there's the twist that nicole kidman had 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 been sleeping with one of the burglars right yeah who was a uh he was part of this security company that installed their security system and then twist on that we learn that kyle nicholas cage's character actually knew about it already and you and then he talks about being a cuckold and i could almost envision that maybe he has some sort of sexual gratification from the idea of cuckoldry not that yeah. he's gay but that he maybe and this is a real thing that he you know kind of gets off on the idea of his wife sleeping around on him with these younger more virile men but then of course there's the triple twist of the fact that she actually didn't sleep with the guy and that guy is just insane and delusional so i really have no idea how to read that at all (laughs) are you keeping up at home are you keeping up with all the twists yeah um yeah it's it 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 was it was just as you said it was twist upon twist upon twist but it was even with the first twist i was like I don't know that I care that much about the first twist. So yeah, throw two more twists at me at this point. <laughs> Why not? This and even this is, I think, speaks to, I think, a difficulty with them balancing who you're supposed to care about as well, because the the film is so almost preoccupied of setting up the next twist, the next twist, the next twist that you don't really have time to be in the present because when you are as we said earlier it's just shouting and it <laughs> and like the tone peaks it struggles to come down i think it was about um 15 minutes in by the time that the burglars had committed the home invasion and it was shouting and like i think i had to check like the um the time on, on the on the movie when i was watching it i was like we have like what 75 minutes left and like we're here already um but with the, with the twists as well i think it's important to note like that those are not the only twists in the film it i think it tries to make you second guess um and hate to sort of heavily handedly crowbar a saw reference in they're known for their twists but they tend to be better i'll use that in air quotes the twists tend to be better but um not as many of them so with this obviously you had i think it was um Jonah, I think, was the, was the character. He was a 
technician who installed the safe system in the house of the Millers. And then you have his brother, Elias, who is working for an organized crime gang peddling dope who he says that, oh, you know, he's actually doing it because his mother needs a kidney transplant, but then he's like, my mother doesn't actually need a kidney transplant, I'm working for this crime gang. Um, but the crime gang may or may not have blackmailed him into stealing more money after a carjacking, and his brother may or may not have been the mastermind behind the crime gang carjacking him in the first place, but you don't really know because his brother has psychosis. Um, again, are you keeping up? Um <laughs> So I know, I know it's 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 weird to sort of follow along because at this point when you've had twist I lost count of all these twists like twist number seventeen you just kind of like I, I still don't care about the first twist and here we are I mean when you sort of take into consideration the um, the plethora of never ending twists that this film just loves skyrocketing at you um, with overarm throws I mean. How did any of these land for you at all? No, not really. And I mean, I think you're right that the problem is, is that before you even get to the twist, you don't care about any of the characters. So it doesn't mean anything to you, really, if it turns out that they're not who they say they are or something that they claim is actually different in some way. So that didn't, it didn't have any emotional impact to me. I mean, I, I wasn't invested in the relationship between Kyle and his wife, played by Nicole Kidman, uh, or the brother burglars, or the uh, sort of cracked out girlfriend of the burglar, the Ben Mendelsohn's burglar, played by Jordana Spiro, who really deserves this. I, I like, side note, this movie has a wildly overqualified cast, even in small roles. All of these, I think maybe people who weren't doing much at the time, but went on to have a better careers, Ben Mendelsohn and Jordana Spiro and uh, Liana Liberato, but all of them really don't deserve this movie. But uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely didn't care. And I think by the end, there's so many twists and especially with the character, the brother who is delusional you're still not 100% sure what really happened there between yeah. him and Nicole Kidman um, or between him and the brother and whether he was the mastermind of this carjacking where they steal the drugs, as you're talking about. And I, I, I didn't care, but also I couldn't put the pieces together enough to have an impact. And then this movie does, I suppose in a way to its credit, as you're talking about the short ending, it just ends right at the end. Like there's yeah. no wrap yeah. up. There's no epilogue. There's no, it's just, Oh, we killed the last bad guy movie over credits. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, all right, cool. I'm done with the movie. But on the other hand, it didn't give you a chance to kind of uh, wrap those twists up or put a bow on them or, or make it clear what exactly went on. But I didn't need to know. And um those Saw movies, just by the way, are insanely convoluted <laughs> when you get yeah. Yeah. high note on that. I mean, <laughs> but one of the things, they're, they're, they're bad, but it's, it's weirdly impressive when you get to like Saw 5 and Saw 6, how they cram in twists into the previous movies retroactively is kind of amazing. So um, that's really not relevant, but... Uh, <laughs> Something well, about the Saw movies. <laughs> well, I suppose it goes to speak that um, 
in slight, maybe defense of the Saw films, there are ways to cram them in, even if they're not always the best and they're just kind of there because the Saw, to its credit, it's a franchise. It's known for the twists and the twist endings. But I think if you're going to cram them in, if you have to, Saw was maybe a way to do it, maybe. Um, if you know, And I never thought I was going to compare this film to Saw in any way, shape or form <laughs> before we started recording, but here we are. Um, but, but like you said, there's just, there's just so much going on. And then this is actually go to say as well, that there are, um, two other burglars in the midst of all of this. Um, I think, uh, the female burglar was called Petal, but all she really does is she's kind of there to be the first to lose her temper because I think she has an addiction and my notes were she was basically Goldilocks because she was just going around trying on Sarah's clothes <laughs> just to give her something to do. Um, and then we had the brute called Ty, who I think was um, the the main affiliate of the crime gang, who was keeping an eye on them to make sure it went to plan. But he was also hot-headed as well. Basically, you've got four hot-headed burglars um, and not an ounce of nuance between any of them. And their first go-tos are, well, we should probably shoot someone. Um, and then it's them talking each other out of shooting people, even though they all suggest shooting someone at some point. And you, you kind of think, like as you say, you know, away from the twists, you kind of think you can root for Jonah, but you can't really, because by the end you still don't really know what his angle is, whether he was good or if he was bad or if he was real or if this was created. And this is, you know, this is all this spiraling drama um, that's not even focusing on the Millers as well. Um, and I, I suppose it's, you know, important to talk about them. Um, obviously, you've got Cage. He is this diamond broker. He's securing deals. He also puts on a bit of a voice. I don't know if you noticed that. I think maybe this goes into that characterization we were talking about. It's it's not one of his most um, obvious cage voices because you can definitely tell when he's doing a cage voice i think you look at a film like peggy sue got married or vampire's kiss um i think this was a cage voice just dialed up by like maybe 1.5 if you're not listening out for it you don't really know that was something else he touched on in the tiff interview to say um oh the voices are an actor's tool so it's like well if i can't stutter i'm gonna do this but to be fair he gets his character gets his hand broken and he gets shot twice. And by the end of the film, he sneaks it in there, but he is stuttering. My note was the end was Cage getting his shit in. Good on you. Now, Sarah is the uh, the wife. It's hinted at... It's, well, it's really kind of alluded to at the start that the whole family is emotionally distant to each other. Um, and then that's going to kind of come into play. Um, but really, it's... Oh, they're a bit emotionally distant. They've got um, the rebellious teenage daughter, you know, same old, same old, with no sort of discredit to um, Liana Liberato, who plays Avery, the daughter. Um, she sneaks out to the party and says, the, I think one of the most teenage lines I've seen written in film, I don't want to have dinner. I want to go to a party. You and every other teenager who's ever been in media. But I, I thought she was, Avery was character was fine. I think that's another part of the drinking game. Take a drink every time she escapes and gets captured, which I think is about three or two or three 
She should have just run away when she had the chance, <laughs> really. They let her go. They they straight up just let her go. And she seems unable to like walk properly just to, to make her way. She she escapes early before the burglars arrive. She gets out and she's very clever. She disables only part of the alarm system so that she mm-hmm. can sneak out and go to this crappy party. And yet when they let her go, she just can't quite manage it. So um yeah, she was. I, I like Liana Liberato. Um, she was great in a, a teen comedy called Banana Split that I always uh, from last year that I always take any opportunity to plug. Uh, <laughs> so I think she's talented. Um, but yeah, you're right. This is the, the most stereotypical teenage rebellious teenage character that you can think of. And then going to the party where the sleazy guy wants to have sex with her and uh, her friend abandons her and uh, just every teenage cliche that you can think of. But we get the important foreshadowing of the friend almost driving off the road so that later she, Avery, can drive off the road into like a telephone pole or something to injure the one sort of clever thing that she does, I guess. Uh, yeah. Although I don't know why it's really that necessary to establish the existence of like a curve in the road and a telephone <laughs> pole, which are, I feel like fairly common things that we've witnessed before, but they, they make sure to very clearly get that in. Yeah, I think this was in the first 15 minutes as well, where, you know, as we've said, rebellious teenage daughter, parents say, you can't go to the party, spoiler alert, she goes to the party, um, meets a friend, Kendra, uh, played by Emily Mead. They um, drive down the road, and the film makes a whole point of showing us that roads have bends in. Um, get ready for that. Um, and then this doesn't come into play for about another hour later. And, you know, maybe this is me just not being a smart audience member, but I don't think at any point I was kind of thinking, that's going to come back into play later. Or oh, you, you thought you could fool me, Schumacher. Not today, sir. Not today. But then this does very weirdly, come back into play later when Avery's be captured for, I don't know, the 15th time at this point. Um, who's who's counting? Who's counting by that point in the movie? Um, so it's one of the, maybe the hundredth time they've renegotiated with the burglars to say that they can get money. Who says, I was at a party earlier, uh, this guy's got 200k in his safe, I can get it for you. So they get um, Petal, um, I think with respect, maybe the least competent um for lack of a better term right. and they send her yeah to, it's uh <laughs> to chaperone and um and then she just gets unnecessarily angry she's gonna like i'm gonna wipe that smug look that better than you look off your face and then avery just very casually unfastens her seatbelt uh drives into that foreshadowed um pole in the road um i assume she goes for the window screen you never you don't see the death you just See a weird angle of the car crashing. Avery returns, completely unscathed, by the way. She must have been going like 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. Something. I mean, she speeds (laughs) up in order to hit the pole and and have that. She's got to injure, pedal there, incapacitate her at least. (laughs) And yeah, but of course, she's wearing her seatbelt, so she's completely fine and just walks away. Uh, Yeah, I will say that not to to try to one-up you, but... That moment early in the film where they almost hit the pole was so jarringly unnecessary (laughs) that I thought there is no way that this is not foreshadowing of something that's going to come later. So I was waiting (laughs) for that to return because it was just so stupid. 
And that's why you're the critic, Josh. This is why you get the big bucks, because you see the things that schlubs like me uh, don't see for, from from a mile off. But I think if nothing else, though, it's um, a great endorsement for car safety and seatbelts. If the film achieves nothing else, um, wear your seatbelt if you take nothing away from this from this episode altogether. Um, but as we said, she's she's completely fine. She's completely unharmed. Turns up at the end of the film, as we said, where it just ends. Um, so I think it's you know, necessary to talk about um, Nicole Kidman's character, Sarah, as well. Um, you know, I think as well we we were kind of talking about actors who were kind of turning up. I think this kind of felt like, I guess, and also as you were saying, the caliber of actor we have here, who are all of them, I think, we can argue a case that every actor is overqualified for this movie. Um, Nicole Kidman, for me at least, just kind of felt she was there. She's here. I, I don't know how, how much more to expand on that. You know, it was Nicole Kidman. You can tell that because the film advertises Nicole Kidman, and I recognise right. her face. <laughs> um, how was Nicole Kidman's um, performance for you in this one? No, I think you're right that it could have been anyone and that you do you wonder why is Nicole Kidman in this movie? Because I feel like at this point, especially we expect to see Nicolas Cage in these kinds of movies for better or worse. That's what he does now. But Nicole Kidman is known for, I think, a a more prestigious uh, caliber of work these days. And I'm not sure exactly. Maybe this was kind of a low point for her. Maybe she wasn't getting a lot of substantial roles or or sophisticated roles at this time and decided, hey, I'm going to take this paycheck role just like Nicolas Cage is. I'm not entirely sure, but she isn't the kind of person that you expect to see in this kind of uh, lower budget, uh, almost straight to video movie. And I don't know, maybe she, she might have done it as a favor if she wanted to work with Joel Schumacher again, I think they worked together on a Batman movie, right? Uh, yes, I'm trying to think which one it would have been. Is it Batman Forever? Uh, I think where she plays the psychiatrist who's Bruce Wayne's love interest. Is that right? Uh, yes, yes. Just a quick look here. Dr. Chase uh, Meridian in 95's Batman Forever. Great, um, great character name right there, Chase Murphy. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, who knows? Who knows? And I, I like Nicole Kidman. I feel like Nicole Kidman is great in a certain kind of role. She has kind of limited range. But when she's playing these haughty, aloof kinds of characters, she can be really, really fascinating. Um, but, yeah, she doesn't get anything to do in this movie. It could have been anyone playing the role of the wife uh, that we've got here. So she's not bad, but it's not like she elevates the role by her presence, by being Nicole Kidman. Um, mm-hmm. So that's all I can say for her. I do have to say, like, uh, as a side, another side note, uh, I I don't know if you've seen the Nicole Kidman movie. Um, oh, and now I'm I'm blanking on the name of it. The Karen, Karen Kusama directed. It starts with a D. Oh, this is terrible. I should have looked this up beforehand so that I didn't sound like a moron. But um, <laughs> that was... This is a moron-friendly podcast. Don't ever oh, worry good. about Destroyer. it. Destroyer is the name of the film from 2018. That was actually highly acclaimed. And I remember seeing that movie where she plays this kind of self-destructive cop. And I thought, 
Nicole Kidman has studied later period Nicolas Cage movies and decided she wanted her own one of those. That's to me how she comes off in that movie. So uh, I don't know if maybe she, uh, you know, took something from Cage after having worked from him here. But uh, that's my tangent about Destroyer, a movie that I think is quite terrible, but a lot of people like. Well, I mean, I suppose taking something from Cage in, you know, in real life, there's only pre and post Cage. You, you can't. <laughs> You can't be the same person after it, but uh, again, like you said, I mean, generally speaking, I'd like Nicole Kidman. I have nothing against Nicole Kidman. I think she's fantastic. Um, but I think, like you said, um, this again, respectfully, could have been anyone who played this role here. Um, you know, whether it was just limitations of the script, so uh, you don't really know what happens in these low-budget films when the filming goes on, or what the situation is. Did she want to be a burglar as well and storm off for 24 <laughs> hours? Who knows? I think the only way it makes sense in my head is if um, they had Joel Schumacher first, and maybe he went to dial Nicolas Cage, but the first four letters of their names are the same, <laughs> five even, so he accidentally called Nicole Kidman first. He's like, uh, I guess you're on board now. And then he called <laughs> Nicolas Cage. I guess that's kind of the only way that it really, um, really makes sense for me. But like I said, she's, she's not given too much to do in the film other than, you know, at the start be the sort of, you know, it's the distant husband and wife, you know, there's something going on there. And then as we said, their whole, you think that the whole backstories of all the characters are maybe going to be intertwined and from the burglars, it's their messy story has already sort of kind of been covered, but just that they've been um, effectively spying on the Millers. Um, Sarah just happens to be a part of it through Jonah. Um, But that's kind of all she's really given to do the kind of did she, didn't she cheat? And then she's just there to be, you know, a wife trying to protect her family and with i guess with cage's character as well all he's really given to do is will he or will he not tell them that there's money in the safe um i suppose with cage's character as well because i guess i was almost conditioned by the film at this point to expect twists from um every character and with his insistence certainly in the first 30 40 minutes that there was um, he didn't have any money uh, when they finally open the safe and there's no money and he's like, no, I'm actually broke. I've got this whole house on credit. All my possessions are from loans. Um, I was waiting for some kind of twist there to be that, um, you know, I think to come earlier in the film, I think I should say that there was going to be, there was actually going to be some money or there was a lot more to his character than what we got. Um, and I think I felt, I guess, a little let down that, oh, he was telling the truth the entire time. And not that there's anything wrong with a character being truthful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not looking for my my uh, protagonist to all be liars and sleazeballs. Um, and I think there's maybe better ways to go about this as an honest character. But again, I don't know if this is with the muddying the characterization that, uh, that Cage wanted to be the, um, the untypical hero or just again with the writing. But I was waiting for something more and it just didn't come. Um, I don't know if you sort of got a similar vibe with the characterization there as well. Yeah, because there's a lot of mysterious stuff there early on. I think, you know, he's on the phone trying to make these deals. And especially in right from the opening scene, which is this kind of overhead helicopter shot, I guess, of, of uh, Kyle in his 
Porsche, his fancy car, driving along the winding roads um, <laughs> toward toward their house. And you hear him uh, kind of on the phone making these deals. And it sounds very post like added in post and i thought right mm -hmm. away that it needed that some some producer said we need to explain more stuff add this voiceover here at the beginning <laughs> and so that to me established right away that the filmmakers don't know what they're doing um but you do you hear him on the phone making all these deals and we see these kind of vague flashbacks of him in a parking garage somewhere with a duffel bag full of money or whatever underground this gang that the burglars work for or something like that and and we don't get that and it's not even entirely clear what his deal making entailed with the diamonds and everything it's all left kind of vague um i did appreciate again going to foreshadowing that he says when he when they discover that the safe is empty and he's telling them he doesn't have any money he says all the money is in the house and then the money was literally in the house at the end of the movie it was inside the wall it made me think of uh, arrested development when they always say they say the money's in the banana stand and it's it's literally cash <laughs> is inside the banana stand so um I, I guess I appreciated that sort of, uh, level of, of foreshadowing, but, <laughs> but it also makes no sense when you get that big reveal, like, oh wait, he actually had all this cash. And even I think Ben Mendelssohn says to him at that point, like, you could have saved us all a whole lot of trouble if you just gave us this money to begin with. And it's very true. <laughs> <laughs> It would have been a much shorter film right. if he had, and maybe for the better, actually. Um, I, th I think he's, his line is like, you could have saved us so much aggravation if you just told us. Because I think they bring up the point a few times that it's, um, that they don't really want to kill anyone that, uh, again, we're going to into the, 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 the inception level of twists here. Um, but that they're being forced to do this by like another power and, uh, you know, everyone can walk away. The millers can claim on the insurance money and get it all back. That it's, I guess, as much as a win-win as you can get if you've ever been um, hijacked in your own home, so to speak. Yeah, an extension maybe or something. I don't know why they keep building more house. They seem to have a lot of house. But I guess there's like one throwaway line where we learn that the that Nicole Kidman's character has designed the house. She's like an architect, I guess, maybe. Yeah, um, was that in one of the, the the Jonah Sarah flashbacks? I think. Yeah, so maybe it's a delusion. Well, Who knows? Maybe you know the, the potentially the one bit of credit that Sarah's character gets could have been a lie. Who knows? Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's an implication that she might be an architect. Although, you know, who cares about Sarah's character by that point in the film? Uh, <laughs> but then. Elias with Jonah are fighting the Millers. They go through a partition and all the money falls out. Um, and he says, you know, why didn't you just tell us this was here? So he says it was um, Sarah's necklace that they'd sold, but he was using it as a, basically as a nest egg in case something had gone wrong, which for um, the Millers it had, his business was. And I don't, I don't know that they ever really explain why he's out of money it just seems to be a thing that has happened in the film unless i missed that yeah i think he says he was fired from his job 
which I guess maybe had to do with diamond brokering. And then he's just kind of trying to broker some diamonds on his own. He says something like it was a family business and I'm not part of the family. And that was about all we got. And at first I was confused and I thought maybe he was referring to Sarah's family, like he worked for her family or something, but that doesn't seem like it was the case. But uh, yeah, that was my impression that he had some sort of salary job or maybe of some kind that was stable, that he was fired from, and he didn't tell the family, and he was instead trying to make these diamond deals independently in order to make some money, maybe. I don't I don't know. This is really <laughs> a, a, a lot of effort I'm putting into trying to understand this. I kept thinking of, of uh, Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, the desperate uh, diamond <laughs> broker who is actually broke. And uh, he didn't have a gambling addiction, Nicolas Cage, in this movie. But uh, I feel like he and Howard Ratner could be friends. <laughs> I think, you know, to sort of butt in there, if you want to see a better film about diamond brokering, go watch Uncut <laughs> Gems. Um, yeah. yeah, I think what you said, I think he, they said they found someone who could do his job for cheaper and then he got fired. Mm. Um, but I think putting the pieces together, he was doing all the deals independently because he had the briefcase full of deals and they're like, Oh, what's this all about then? And he's like, I'm just a middle, like, I don't keep the diamonds on me, which I was kind of like, well, yeah, you idiots. Of course he doesn't keep the diamonds on him. He's a middleman. Leave him alone. Which is one, I think that the only time, like, I I just had enough at that point. This was only about 45 (laughs) minutes in. I was like, just, just, just pause the film, calm down. Let's go back to it. And then it was fine from there on out. But I think this is just one of those things that just happened to be just another speed bump that they throw in there. It's just felt like a lot of padding where it didn't need to be like, they were just trying to find ways just to keep this film going, to keep the quote unquote momentum and the the tension of the film going, they're like, oh, does he have the diamonds? Will he open the safe? I've got this needle full of death chemicals, which I might inject into someone, which sort of kind of, but not really comes back into play later on in a small fight. Um, Do they ever inject? They, they, they threaten with that thing for so long and various characters end up with it. Do they ever inject anyone with it? I think they don't. Um, I think... Uh, it's Elias has it, and he's like, oh, this is what they use for lethal injections. And then Sarah gets it off of him, and then Sarah holds Elias hostage with it, and then they lose it in one of a thousand scuffles that happen in this film. And then I think um, Cage's character has a fight with Ty, who's basically, you know, for reference, the big goon of the um, the burglars. And I think he injects him with half of it, okay. um, which knocks Ty out for about 10 minutes because I think they just they just needed an excuse for the loosest of the loose cannons to just be out of play <laughs> for a few minutes but then this is before Ty gets shot by Elias because he was trying to strangle Jonah because Jonah thought Ty was going to kill Sarah this is like one of those things when you're trying to descri- describe something you ever heard from your neighbours like did you hear this about the Smiths this is this is just this film's tittle tattle. This is just like barbecue gossip, is what this film is. But there was half a chemical involved at some point, and then it, as far as I'm aware, never comes back into play. Um, yeah, drops. it's just so because they they emphasize it so much. You know, it's just you assume, much like the curve in the road and the pole, that it's going to come back in a <laughs> in an important way later on, and yet. 
they just leave it on the floor at a, at a certain point, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think like the plot of this film, they just left it on the floor at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it's an apt metaphor for the entire movie, I suppose. I think, it, again, it's kind of an issue with the film where they, um, I think they're trying to, the film maybe believes it's a bit smarter than it is trying to build up so many small elements or foreshadow so many tiny things, which do and don't do and don't really have some kind of relevance later on like the syringe like the curve in the road um even with the nail gun at the end because it just happens to be there and then someone has it and then they can't use it and then and then cage finally does something useful at the end when he um nails jonah's feet to the floor when they found all the money but by this point this is like minute 86 in the 90 minute film and like finally someone's done something that i can get behind and i don't care um at this point the film uh it's, it's coming to its end um the house is burning down i think because jonah's now killed elias um more barbecue gossip for you because he was going to kill sarah um which i kind of think you know if if you are I suppose in some respects, he is his brother's keeper. He knows of his brother's condition. He knows he can be volatile. You should think that, you know, we're going into a high-tensity, uh, um, big situation with his family, one person of which you are criminally obsessed with. So what am I going to do? I'm going to point the gun at that person. So quite frankly, Elias deserved to be shot in the back of the head. Um, and then I think... I think it's Cage's character, uh, Kyle, sets the money on fire. Just so he's like, well, now you've got nothing. I think it was him. I could be wrong. Um, yeah, well, because they're, they're, it's in a, it's in an unfinished area, right, of the house. So there's a lot of chemicals. I think paint is like paint thinner, maybe, that is uh, spilled. And so he realizes, oh, this is flammable. And then he's got another bit of foreshadowing, the lighter that uh, Jonah had left outside the house yes. when he was standing there smoking cigarettes and spying on Sarah that at first they think belongs to the teenage daughter and they suspect her of smoking. And so Kyle picks that lighter up early in the film and holds on to it. And then later, Jonah's own lighter proves to be the tool of his demise <laughs> when Kyle is able to use it to light the paint thinner and send the whole place up in flames, I think is what happened. I mean, I mean, it's, it's important to note that we think because a lot happens and also nothing happens in this film. It's, yes. it's, it's kind of weird to keep up and just be thankful that the only reason you watch this is if you're an idiot like me and have a Nicholas Cage podcast. Um, but this, this all ties into what you said earlier, that the, the ending of the film is so abrupt and so quick. So, um, in one of the various escape attempts earlier in the film, Kyle and the daughter Avery had managed to trigger the house alarm system. The, I guess the private security have called them. They take a long time to clock on that clearly things are not right. So they send someone over. Um, Jonah shoots the security guard in the head because he may or may not have recognized him because they'd swapped shifts so he could commit the felony. Um, and then by the end of the film, the police are eventually closing in. 
um, because I, who cares? Why not at that point? Who, why yeah, cause not? It's, cause it's the end of the movie. I mean, they just had, let's just put some siren sounds in the background <laughs> so that, you know, things are going to be okay <laughs> yeah. and roll credits. Basically. So Cage's character has a broken hand. He's been shot in the leg and in the, the, the guts, I think so he's bleeding out. He's just saying to the family, let me die, which I suppose is another important thing because he he says earlier that he's worth more dead than alive because um, it turns out he has a lot of money in life insurance. So if they if he died, they could claim the money in life insurance, which is kind of just another thing that's kind of thrown out there when you're kind of figuring out, well, does he have money or not? Just tell me so I can get on with this film at this point. Not that I'm invested, but Sarah's like, shut up. I love you, irrespective of money, which good family message, I guess, whatever. <laughs> Um, and then the family is together as the house burns down and suddenly credits. And like that's that's the end of the film. Um, so you just kind of yeah, like... And hmm. it doesn't seem like things are going to work out because they lost all their money and they're not going to be insured for that money because it was unregistered cash inside their wall, presumably. Um, I guess maybe you got insurance if your house burns down. But uh yeah it doesn't seem like everything has turned out nicely by the end there even though the movie has decided everything's okay the end yeah it's it's like the movie again trying to be smarter than it thinks it is with all the foreshadowing and telling you no it is fine because the millers are safe and then i'm like but it's not okay is it take a look at yourself film um and then you just like shrugging and throwing your hands in the air as the credits are coming down and you don't know what's going on anymore um and it's and then you think well you know there's there's 90 minutes and there's a reason this film went so quickly to straight to straight to dvd i mean i think i think that my biggest takeaways were one get yourself house insurance and two wear a seatbelt those the, the my biggest takeaways i um i don't know what yours were if any from trespass yeah no those are those are very important valuable messages that everyone really <laughs> should heed uh i yeah i i don't know i i think i was so baffled and yet apathetic by the end that i i didn't really take away anything um yeah I, again sure. i think my my takeaway more was that uh these actors are all better elsewhere and, <laughs> sympathy you know, was your takeaway <laughs> yeah investigate their filmographies and find something better to watch them in perhaps um that's uh yeah that's my takeaway so uh, well i mean it's, you know it's, it's a sympathetic takeaway i think what something actually meant to bring up earlier um which is actually I think kind of more interesting the entire film was a story that Cage brought up at the at the same TIFF press junket, which the, there's a 20 minute video you can find of this on YouTube, and it's one of those where um, I don't know if it's just just me not being like a journalist or whatever, but um, I guess my thinking is oh, okay. You're supposed to ask about the film, but you get a lot of international and sort of domestic critics asking more personal questions and. Someone's like, um, oh, how did you become Nicolas Cage? And then he's kind of like, and he very graciously answered the question. Then he just, at, at the end, he's like, that's a kind of a personal question. And I was like, well, yeah, ask about the film, you loser. Um, but someone asked him, I think one of the final questions, if Cage had actually ever been in a home invasion himself, which to my surprise, he said yes. And then he told the story about this. Um 
so he said, I think in a previous relationship when his uh, child um, was only two years old, um, they were living in Orange County. And then he said that one night he opened his eyes at two in the morning and at the end of his bed was a naked man wearing his leather jacket, eating a fudge sickle. Um, which, and I, and I will stress that Cage said, and he can kind of tell that he was very reluctant to say this. He's like, yeah, if I look back now, it's probably funny, but at the time it was horrifying. He said he chased him into the bathroom. He was eventually able to sort of talk him out of the house until the police could come and basically take this guy away. And he added the reason he didn't press charges because in Cage's own words, he could tell this person wasn't all there. Uh, but then the cops said to him, if he'd entered any other person's house in that neighborhood, he would have been shot because Dix Cage doesn't own a gun. He was saying that he will always try to de-escalate violence first, but understandably, I think soon moved out of that property because he didn't feel comfortable there anymore. So you, you kind of think like, you know, you know, there's experience that can be used to some extent, you know, to, I guess, bring a lot more emotion into this film. And yeah, as we were saying, you do get some of the Cage shouting here and there, which, you know, um, I often bring it up. Sometimes you get Nicolas Cage films and films that Nicolas Cage is in. I think this is a film that he's in where debatably the shouting is warranted because of the situation, but you just wonder if he could have bit brought a bit more to it. Yeah, it it does seem sometimes, as much as he really throws himself into these parts and tries to find anything to grab onto and to give some depth to them, it does also seem like he, he certainly knows what people expect from him and that maybe he's giving those Nicolas Cage moments in a pro forma kind of way, like, okay, here's now the moment when I can do that and I can yell about being a cuckold or, or whatever it is that people can clip out and put into a reel on YouTube or something like that. And this <laughs> yeah. this movie feels like maybe there's a bit of that. There's also a weird thing in the early in the movie, he's like sniffling a lot. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I thought that when we were going to get some sort of reveal that he was a, a cocaine addict, but um, maybe that's only in Nicolas Cage's backstory in his mind or something that never <laughs> came up. But another thing where you're like, all right, he's doing something. He's trying to, imbue this with something but i think overall that you're you're right that this isn't a nicholas cage movie this isn't a movie that is driven by any vision on his part or that really utilizes him in a fascinating way um but i will say that story which is crazy that would have been a better movie you should just make that into a movie <laughs> exactly there was there was a there was a better film right there and um you know, we we didn't get we didn't get a better film. As we were saying, the this film is quite frankly beneath the actors. And I hate to sound snobbish, it is beneath the actors that were in it. And again, my three takeaways are um, get house insurance, wear a seatbelt, and watch uncut gems. Those are the three things <laughs> that I've taken away from the film and uh, this conversation. But but certainly, as we look to uh, wrap up here. Josh, you know, what, what would be, so I guess, your final thoughts on um, Trespass from 2011? Um, don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did just spend a lot of time talking about it. But uh, I think, as you say, I mean, if you're a Nicolas Cage completist and you are eager to see any Nicolas Cagey moments, then okay, I suppose you'd watch this and there's a little bit there. But... Uh, otherwise, yeah, it's it's just it's it's forgettable. It's a shame 
my my thought on it is it's a shame that this is how Joel Schumacher's career ended because as uneven as his career is, he was a talented filmmaker who made some really interesting movies and, you know, just kind of petered out there at the end. And so this is a is a shame that this was how he went out. And and when I was looking at, you know, the list of possible movies to talk about, that was what drew me to this one. That was what I thought, oh, this is distinctive about this movie is this Schumacher as the end of his career. And it's not a good way to go out. So uh, that's that's my kind of ultimate takeaway is that uh, Joel Schumacher uh, take two or three movies earlier than this and pretend that that's where his career ended. But uh, it was fun to talk about. So I appreciate being here and uh, getting to riff on this. Absolutely. I think the best takeaway is this is a great episode. Just forget the film ever happened. <laughs> um, so I mean, on, on that bombshell, as we look to wrap up here, uh, Josh Bell, ultimately, thank you so much for joining me and talking about Trespass. Uh, for the listeners, uh, where can we find you on the socials and elsewhere? Oh, gosh, everywhere. Well, uh, you can check out uh, joshbellhateseverything.com, which is kind of sporadically updated uh, you can find me at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter, uh, where I kind of uh, collate all of my various film criticism and writing, which is in a whole bunch of places. And you can check out Awesome Movie Year, the podcast that I co-host with comedian and filmmaker Jason Harris, and that is produced by David Rosen, a previous guest of this podcast. Um, and that's at awesomemovieyear.com and at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter and at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook. And what we do on that podcast is we, uh, in each season, take a look back at a different year in film history and each episode covers a different movie in a variety of different categories from best picture to the box office champion and our personal picks and we actually did a Nicolas Cage episode we did an episode on matchstick men in our season <laughs> yes. which is a good it's a there's a takeaway see that instead of trespass see matchstick <laughs> men which is a good Nicolas Cage movie yes uh that was in our season on the 2003 so uh check all that out if you can remember all of that um <laughs> that's what i got going on wonderful all the links will be in the description uh wherever you're listing or wherever you get your podcast so plenty of josh bell action out there to check out for you please do but we come to an end on this episode i thank josh bell again uh so much for joining me this was a lot of fun to talk about trespass um and we wrap this episode up so thank you for listening if you have been we'll see you in the next one but until then keep on keep on caging it's all you have to do take care thank you and goodbye <laughs>